Well, good morning. It's a pleasure to be here with you this morning to celebrate and wish in worship and uh, recognize even a few faces I've seen before, so that's nice too. One of my professors, John Cobb, has written a book entitled Becoming a Thinking Christian, in which he argues that the laity of the church have not been asked to think clearly about their beliefs. He believes lay people have shown their intellectual gifts in various professions, doctors, lawyers, teachers, engineers, and so forth, but they are not accustomed to that quality of thinking within the church. And I quote him now, many very intelligent people are still operating out of a simplistic view of faith. Too many have been led to assume that faith is incompatible with intellectual challenge and integrity. They have stopped expecting the church to ask this of them. Well, this morning I want to take up Professor Cobb's challenge and do some thinking about Paul and the Christian faith. You will discover Paul is not the easiest person to understand. He wrote in a language we don't use anymore. And his view of the world is completely different than the scientific world that we live in. And he was raised to think in terms of a Jewish conception of God. And yet his ministry was to non-Jews. So he had to find images and ideas that would appeal to Gentiles in first century Rome. So our difficult task is to figure out what he was saying and what he meant, and only then can we then get around to deciding whether it has any real relevance for our lives. This morning I've been asked by Kelly to develop Paul's understanding of community. And to do that, I want to explore Paul's notion of the body of Christ. It's a comprehensive term that he used to describe the communities that he was forming. So let's think about what Paul was up to. The first thing we discover is something rather surprising. The body of Christ is not merely a metaphor for Paul, nor is it just the word for a group of people. He meant something quite literally. The body of Christ is the resurrected body of Jesus. On Easter, we're used to hearing gospel accounts of Jesus' earthly body no longer in the tomb. He appears to his disciples. He talks with them. He eats with them. He shows the wounds, the stigmata that he has on his hands. None of those images would make sense to Paul. Paul calls the resurrected body of Jesus in Greek a pneuma soma, a spirit body. He insists that the resurrected Jesus cannot be like his earthly body, for a body made up of flesh is mortal and it decays. A pneuma body is neither mortal nor can it decay. It is eternal it is perfect, it is pervasive, and it's cosmic in scope. If you're having trouble imagining that body, 
welcome to the club. Still, let's work on Paul's image some more. The Panuma body for Paul is not only a description of the resurrected Jesus, it is also a description of the Holy Spirit and even the reality of God, who is the full and complete Panuma Soma. So the body of Christ, the resurrected Jesus, participates in the living body of God. That's what Paul believes. For Paul, the resurrected Jesus has a body, but it's not like a human body, not a body that could have wounds or would eat. A pneuma body does not resemble anything in the ordinary world we live in. Because that world, according to Paul, is suffering from terminal illness and is about to come to an end. So we need to push some more to figure out what is Paul saying about our world. The Stoics, whose views really influenced a lot of Paul's thought, believe that we, the world we live in is a cosmic body, and that cosmic body is made up of pneuma. But for the Stoics, the world and God are the same thing. They're two words for the same reality. So there's one cosmic body called God, and everything in the world is God. The Jewish Paul cannot accept that. And so he believes with them that God is a pneuma body. But the body of God and the body of the world are two separate bodies. The pneuma body of God, which the resurrected Jesus is now participating in, stands in utter contrast to the world of space and time. So for Paul, there's two bodies then, two cosmic realities, the world and God. And the body of Christ is part of the body of God. But as we will see, somehow that body of Christ also impinges upon the world of time and space. I warned you in advance, Paul was not going to be easy. So let's find out what Paul's up to with regard to understanding our world. Paul doesn't really explain how, but he believes the body of the world is diseased. It's mortally sick. In Galatians, he cites evidence of the world's sickness, and here's his list. Fornication, impurity, licentiousness, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, anger, quarrels, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing. Pretty good list, isn't it? Well, given this type of sickness, Paul does not believe God can be part of the world because God is pure panuma without any impairment. For Paul, the world suffers from a growing infection that's destroying human life. An infection that Paul calls sin. And the greatest proof of the infection of the world is the crucifixion of Jesus. So Paul thinks there's now two cosmic bodies, the world and God, one sick, the other well, 
one evil, one righteous. Consequently, he believes we live in a world from which we need to be healed, rescued, saved. Now, if you're following along, you're going to see where we're going next. He's got to figure out how to get those two worlds together. It's not clear how much Paul knew about Jesus, but Jesus was widely known as a healer. He too saw the world suffering from many illnesses caused by political subjugation, psychological impression, mental illness, and extreme poverty. Jesus formed healing communities in which everyone was welcomed and everyone fed. Paul follows the example of Jesus and begins to form communities to heal the world's sickness. His task is also to explain to his first century listeners how the cure is found within the body of Christ. So let's dig a little deeper into that idea and see what Paul has to say. Paul, again, has to find a way to explain how to get God, who has the cure for the world's illness, to transform the world and enter it. And Paul believes that transformation would be complete before he died. And, of course, he was wrong. But it's important for us to understand how he thinks that transition is going to take place. And I think it goes something like this. While Jesus is killed by the world's sickness, his unwavering commitment to God could not be defeated. And so God transformed Jesus into the penuma body of the resurrection, into the body of Christ. That means death has been defeated and a door or a window or a bridge between the two worlds has now been formed. And since Christ himself is the mediator between the two bodies, it is through the body of Christ that God's presence streams into the world. In fact, we can say the body of Christ is God's living presence streaming into the world. Furthermore, now that God's presence is flowing into the world, a power begins the process of healing or salvation a word that means to become whole or healed. And the power of the Spirit, the divine power that forms persons into communities, Paul calls agape, love. Agape for Paul is not a human quality. That's eros. It is a divine power of God. It is a power that heals and transforms. It is a power that forms communities of healed persons who themselves become healers. I need the sign back up here because agape is the heart of the body of Christ. Let me point out the implication of this power of agape. God's power is not like the power of earthquakes and atomic bombs. It is not a tyrannical force that coerces or compels you to obey. God's power of agape is a power that lures, entices, 
supports, and forgives. It is not a power that overwhelms and destroys. There are lots of kinds of power in the world that have nothing to do with God's power of agape. Yet the Christian religion has distorted God by referring to God as omnipotent. God is not all the kinds of powers that exist. And even scripture never refers to God as omnipotent. It's bad theology, and it's time to exercise our creeds and our hymns where that word seems to be omnipresent. In the body of Christ, participants know they are loved just as they are. But they also know that God loves them too much to let them stay there. They're expected to continue the process of transformation throughout their lives. For Methodists, this is what John Wesley meant by sanctification. Paul himself knew that his own life had been dramatically changed and that the life he now lives in the flesh is quite different. And I quote him, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. To be in the body of Christ is to be part of two bodies, the ordinary world of space and time and the living reality of God. And that's what Paul is witnessing to. Through an encounter with the resurrected Jesus, Paul acquires faith. Through his confidence in God's creative presence, Paul has hope for the transformation of the world. Through agape, Paul himself becomes an agent of reconciliation. While Paul could give examples of the world's sickness, he could also give evidence of the transforming power of the body of Christ. Again, the list. Joy, love, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Isn't that a little better list than the other one? Well, all of those qualities are divine gifts given to humans who willingly undergo transformation within the body of Christ. Okay, that's the outline of Paul. So where are we? Well, Paul's view of the world is not our view, at least not mine, and his images can often seem strange and bewildering to us, Nevertheless, he lays the foundation for us to think his thoughts in our own categories. We can accept the claim that God and the world are not the same reality. Yet we also believe that God is the creative power within the world that transforms our lives and continually seeks to transform the world. And with Christ as our image, we believe God is at work in every moment when evil is transformed by love into justice. We can, can we not, recognize that God seeks to persuade us to achieve our full and complete selfhood, to form communities where we celebrate in word and sacrament the healing presence of God. And we are confident, are we not, that the persistent presence of agape is the hope of the world. One of the most radical ways that Paul believes agape transforms the world into the body of Christ 
is by exposing the sickness of cultural values that are used to harm one another. In the masculine world of the first century, men denigrated women. Jews looked down on Gentiles and Gentiles on Jews, and those who were free looked down on slaves. Not so in the body of Christ, says Paul. In Christ, and I quote, there is no Jew or Greek, there is no slave or free, nor is any male or female, for all are one in Christ. Sexism, racism, gender bias, friends and enemies list are all cultural claims that are evidence of the sickness that needs to be transformed by agape. And here I think we need to take a step beyond Paul. We live in a multi-faith world where we know Christianity does not have a monopoly on God or the truth. And I learned from Jesus and Paul that the God of Israel and the whole world has always and is always bringing hope to humans by means of agape. And wherever that occurs, under whatever name it occurs, I see the body of Christ enveloping human existence even when it occurs in some other religion. Chris Hedges was a journalist reporting about the war in Bosnia in the 1990s, and he describes the experience of a Christian family who was living amidst the Muslims who were their enemies. He tells how they are, the Muslims kicked them out of their house. He watched, they watched as hastily dug graves, kept burying their friends who were Christians, and how the children were left to be street urchins. One day the Muslim police came, they took their eldest son away, and they never saw him again. A couple of months after their elder son was killed, their younger son was killed in an automobile accident and are now childish. The father was then dig the graves of those who were being killed. Their hatred of Islam and their neighbors grew and grew to the place where they were nothing more short than just plain bitter. Five months after their son's disappearance, his wife gave birth to a baby girl. The family was destitute, they had no food, the woman was so weak she couldn't nurse her own baby, and they gave the baby the only thing they had, tea. The baby was dying. On the sixth day, there was a knock at the door. One of their Muslim neighbors came and handed them a half liter of milk. His coward survived the conflict, and he knew the baby needed the milk. So day after day, he brought milk to the child even though his Muslim neighbors were criticizing for helping the Christian baby. For 442 straight days without missing did he come, and he never accepted money for what he did. The family eventually moved out of the area and moved to their own Serbian friends. And amongst them, their neighbors began to harshly talk about the Muslims and the hatred of Islam. But the Christian family couldn't do it anymore. In spite of all the violence and anger that had overtaken their lives, 
The compassion of a neighbor broke the sickness of a world at war. A Muslim who understood the agape of Allah witnessed to what Christians understand what it means to be part of the body of Christ. A community committed to transforming the sickness of the world into justice through love. The body of Christ, the presence of God's own reality in the world, is a cosmic force working at all times and places. Those who have the eyes of faith recognize agape at work. And since we are given that vision, it is our mission to transform our lives and to heal the world.